getting all set up to give a talk almost always reminds me of Sankara Dukkha. There's so much to get together. It's so much work to arrange it all, especially as I get older. <laughs> so many more needs. and <laughs> So many more things we have to get together to keep this body functioning well. I'll explain more in a moment. (laughs) Anyway, here we all are, still exploring dukkha, still trying to figure out how to live with this human predicament of, of living in a world of change and a world of dukkha. The American philosopher James Baldwin said, people who do not suffer can never grow up. They don't know who they are. Dukkha takes us deep into the reality of being a human, a human being. It brings us down to earth and it, and it gets us in touch with the full complexity of who we are. It makes us grow up. So we'll continue on with dukkha, and I just want to clarify that when we talk about these three kinds of dukkha, dukkha dukkha, viparinama dukkha, and sankara dukkha, in these teachings, the Buddha's very much pointing towards individual suffering, towards our own individual suffering and what we can do about it. Other parts of the teachings, other parts of the path, focus on collective suffering, So there's teachings on uh, ethics and sila. There's teachings on generosity, both of which we'll be talking about in the coming days. So I just want to make it kind of clear that that there's, in addition to this individual um, exploration of our own suffering, there is then the turning out also to the world around us and um, how do we contribute to suffering and the end of suffering in the world around us, and we will be talking about that. So the sutra uh, that talks about these three kinds of suffering is from the Samyutta Nikaya, chapter 45. Bhikkhus, monks, practitioners, there are these three kinds of suffering. What three? Suffering caused by pain, suffering caused by conditioned existence, and suffering due to change. It is for the full comprehension, clear understanding, ending and abandonment of these three forms of suffering that the Noble Eightfold Path is to be cultivated. So the order was a little different than the order that I've done them. So the the middle one the suffering caused by conditioned existence. That's Sankara Dukkha, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So Sankara Dukkha is the Dukkha due to having taken birth with this human body, heart, and mind. Sometimes it's called the Dukkha of conditioned reality or suffering due to conditioned formations. It's the subtlest kind. It's, you know, the first one, dukkha, dukkha, dukkha caused by pain, all of us can relate to. 
the dukkha dutta change. Yeah, pretty much we can get on board with that too. This one is um, more subtle. It's more pervasive and it's more existential, you could say. It refers to the stressful nature of all formations of existence or all conditioned phenomena. So that includes us. It includes all experiences of body and mind. So so the stressful nature of all experience because of the continual arising and passing away they're always arising and passing away, anicca, and because of their contingent nature, meaning their um, dependent nature. They're not, they're not independent nature, contingent, depending upon other things. So every physical and mental experience arises only when certain conditions come together, and these conditions are changing all of the time. This body-mind, the physical universe itself, nothing exists independently. It's all only a momentary set of conditions that comes together and that connects to other sets of conditions that are all constantly changing. Are you getting stressed out yet? (laughs) It's the constant ending and reforming the instability of this, sankara dukkha. And sometimes we experience this kind of dukkha as a pervasive low-grade anxiety. Something just isn't quite right. Things can never be gotten just right. So this suffering, as I said, comes from having taken birth in this world of change where we're constantly impacted by the environment largely out of our control. That last part is what gets us. (laughs) So any experience that impacts us, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, is dukkha because of the uncontrollable nature of these impacts and our continual reaction to them. So there's all this impacting happen constantly and we're always reacting to that, maybe on very uh, gross ways like grasping and aversion, but also just very subtly. We're always responding moment by moment to this sense impingement, trying to manage the world. So this word impingement, even in English, we don't use it a lot, and some of you who English isn't your first language probably don't recognize it, I would guess. Sense impingement, what is that? It means, um, impingement means to have an impact, especially a negative one. Intrusion into an area belonging to someone. That's impingement. Intrusion into an area belonging to someone. Encroaching upon. So through our senses, we feel intruded upon by the world. Subtly invaded. 
things come into our space uninvited, they still come. They crash the party. That sound hitting your body is sense impingement. (laughs) The impact, did you feel it? Some of you are probably sitting quietly in meditation, and you might be irritated with me. (laughs) Or maybe even angry, I messed up your beautiful meditation. You may even still feel the reverberations in your body, right? That's that sankara, dukkha, ana kind of exaggerated level. That's happening all the time on subtle levels, and then sometimes somebody does whack a bell. So what's the problem here? If we go down through the layers, irritation, anger, down through the layers, keep digging down, 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 what we come at the bottom, what we touch is vulnerability. Sankara dukkha means that we're vulnerable beings in this contingent world. I can put that down now. (laughs) So this sense impingement, it's kind of wearying on, again, a subtle level that we might not consciously notice. We're, We're pretty damn busy with the first two kinds of dukkha. (laughs) They take most of our attention. But when we get quieter, sometimes we we tune into the sankara dukkha, the kind of wearying aspect of, of being a contingent being in a changing world, and kind of the edginess of that. It's also wearying. We wonder where we can rest. So this third kind of suffering is for the brave-hearted because it requires that we recognize our vulnerability in this world. And to turn towards and feel the nature of uncontrollable sense impingement from the world around us means recognizing that we can't make ourselves into a separate, independent, completely protected being. We're spending, we spend most of our time trying to do that. We're trying to um, kind of separate ourselves out from the world so that we can feel invulnerable. Our deepest wish is for security. We want things ordered and predictable. Thank you. And we use many strategies to try to protect ourselves from this vulnerability, including every variety of grasping, pushing away, and doling out and distracting. This game plan gives us some illusion of protection. But the problem is, with so many causes and conditions, we just can't make things be the way we want them to. We can't 
peg them down. We can't control them. It's a wild world. We're not pleased about this. We experience this existential dilemma as unnerving, frustrating, fearful, dissatisfying, and stressful. Have you felt any of those things in the last couple months? It's not your fault. It's that we live in an unnerving world. And so we we keep trying to find the place we can land. We keep trying to find some way we can make it all come together and be perfect. We keep looking for perfection. A number of years ago when I was practicing in Burma, a friend and I were comparing our our kutis. So a kuti is your little cottage that you get um, for your to stay in, and it's kind of nice. You have your own little kuti, cottage, um, cabin, whatever you want to call it. They're small, just one little room. And um, I think we were secretly trying to figure out if the other person maybe had the perfect kuti. Because, you know, like my kuti, it was um, exposed. uh, So it had a beautiful view of the Irrawaddy River. Um, It was... um, Uh, Not very buggy because it was so out in the open. However, it got a lot of sun. It was very hot. The smoke came up from the village. And it was loud. You heard everything that was going on in the village. Well, my friend's cabin, it was way back in this little gully. Quiet. No smoke. (laughs) However, it was buggy. One time she even had a snake in her (laughs) And, um, and it was cool, though. It wasn't hot because it was shaded. So we're here, we're comparing our kutis. And the, the final conclusion we came to was, there's not a perfect kuti. <laughs> and I, I use that, that's like a code phrase for me. <laughs> it's like, there's not a perfect kuti. So if you can't find a perfect kuti, it's not your fault. This is from the book After the Ecstasy, Then the Laundry. A senior lama said, Perfection must be around here somewhere. Where is it? Is it the next experience or the one after that? My true practice is patience, not wanting anything special or unusual to happen. As soon as I see striving and expecting, I know I've lost the great perfection. The hardest thing, and this is a senior lama, the hardest thing I still have to pass through is the realization that there is no final perfect condition to rely on. It is all fundamentally insecure, changing. You don't learn this quickly. You have to let go into this ordinary perfection again and again. There is no perfect kuti. Another way we can look at Sankara Dukkha, if I haven't given you enough already, 
is that because of the contingent nature of things, the dependent nature of things, um, all things go towards entropy, chaos, and disorder. And it's a lot of work just to keep things together, just to keep this body together, just to keep this heart and mind together. Joseph Goldstein puts it this way. Without doing anything, your house or apartment gets dirty. One way we might relate to that is the amount of maintenance it takes just to keep this body going. You might have noticed this on retreat. You have to feed it, bathe it, rest it, exercise it. When I was first on my first long retreat here, I was doing this Mahasi lineage practice with the noting. And the strict Mahasi lineage, you note every two or three seconds your experience, and you you never stop. So uh, reaching, lifting, moving. And I remembered a certain point, I would contemplate doing something and I'd go, oh, it's too much work. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just not going to do it. (laughs) That reminds me of Sankara Dukkha. (laughs) And then aging. If nothing else teaches us about Sankara Dukkha, it's aging. Like, I just notice how many more things I have to do to keep this body uh, together and functioning well than 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, (laughs) last year. (laughs) So sometimes it's a little frustrating. You come on retreat and you have this sense that you're supposed to be able to control things a little bit your own heart, body, mind, and then to find out over and over again that it can't be done. There's a book by a Zen teacher named Ed Brown, and he says, Funny thing, you start sitting and your life unfolds. Sitting meditation is beyond your conception, beyond your agency, It's beyond your doing or structuring. You sit down here and your life unfolds without your directing it. That's the good news, and the bad news is it's out of your control. And isn't that great? (laughs) If it were up to you to control things, how utterly challenging that would be with so many things misbehaving. You might not appreciate your liveliness while you are busy wanting them to be peaceful, calm, or serene. Your life opens up and you become more interested in how things are manifesting as you stop telling them to be different than they are. That's uh, pointing towards the wisdom. We're going to get to the wisdom of letting go, of non-clinging, letting be. We graduated a, a group of um, trainees, uh, now, now new teachers, uh, um, about a year and a half ago. And at one point in the training, I, I talked to them about these three kinds of dukkha. And it was interesting because the one they honed in on, the one they really wanted to talk about was Sankara dukkha. And um, one of the African-American women in the training, she said something so interesting. She said, 
You know, I teach a lot of white people, and um, they have the most trouble with Sankara Dukkha. She said they think that they just haven't figured things out yet. They haven't figured out how to get things perfect, and that it's their fault. She said, my people know that things aren't perfect, so we don't have that expectation. And I think about that a lot as a white person and um, a person raised middle class. And kind of the more we come from groups with power or privilege, actually I think the harder Sankara Dukkha is because we have this expectation that things should go our way. We have a sense uh, of kind of almost entitlement to stability. (laughs) And then when um, we see that we come here and we say that we can't control all of this, it comes as a surprise. So if you're feeling uh, on retreat, if you're feeling vulnerable or out of control, powerless, and you find it disturbing, sometimes it's helpful just to name that Sankara Dukkha. It breaks the spell that we messed up and that there's some better or perfect condition that we uh, failed to find. It takes away the personal nature of it and the anxiety that it's our fault. When we know that it's just part of dukkha, the part of the dukkha being human, we can stop blaming ourselves, stop blaming conditions, stop trying to make things be perfect, and look at how we can relate to what is right in front of us. So I find it a relief. I use that, that note sometimes. Oh yeah, this is Sankara dukkha. The computer malfunctions and you can't get it to work. Oh, Sankara Dukkha. So let's look a little bit more at our conditioning in the face of this continual impingement on our senses. So when we identify with these sense experiences of mind, heart, and body, We then think we have to protect and manage and control them. A a Dharma teacher, Judy Leaf, says, We have taken a tiny speck of the vastness of the universe and staked it out as our territory, and now we are stuck with protecting it from change. There's a great story. Um, There's an author named Lynn Jensen, a Zen teacher I like a lot. And this uh, story is in his book. um, And it's from the British author E.M. Forster. And it's about the um, adverse relationship between freedom and claiming territory. And and, uh, a person in the story is talking about some property that he owns. It makes me feel it ought to be larger. The other day I heard a twig snap in it. 
I was annoyed at first, for I thought that someone was blackberrying and depreciating the value of the undergrowth. On coming nearer, I saw it was not a man who had trodden on this twig and snapped it, but a bird, and I felt pleased, my bird. The bird was not equally pleased. Ignoring the relationship between us, it took flight as soon as it saw the shape of my face and flew straight over the boundary hedge into a field, the property of Mrs. Hennessy, where it sat down with a loud squawk. It had become Mrs. Hennessy's bird. Something seemed grossly amiss here, something that would not have occurred had the wood been larger. I could not afford to buy Mrs. Hennessy out. I dared not murder her. And the limitations of this sort beset me on every side. Nor was I comforted when Mrs. Hennessy's bird took alarm for the second time and flew clean away from all of us under the belief that it belonged to itself. To me, this is a description of Sankara Dukkha and, and, and the sense we stake out this territory, right? And then we, we have to protect it. That's what happens when we identify with experience. So we identify in some sense to protect ourselves from this basic vulnerability that I was talking about. We try to control our sense experience through grasping. You heard these words before, right? Through grasping, through pushing away, and through dulling out, spacing out. And most of us have our preferred strategy of those three. But of course, we all use all three. And we use these strategies to try to protect this self and to actually, you could say, to, to disconnect from reality, to disconnect from our contingency in this world. Like grasping gives us the illusion that we can control pleasantness and make it stay, and aversion gives us the illusion that we can um, control unpleasantness and get rid of it. And delusion just spaces us out so we don't even connect with our human situation. These strategies actually have some success in giving us the illusion of control. But they demand a high price. And that price is the shielding and the hardening of the heart, mind, and body, and the dulling of the vibrancy of this world. On top of that, it doesn't work. (laughs) Because of continual change, we can't um, separate ourselves out. Because of this contingency, we can't separate ourselves out from the world. And so that's why we feel vulnerable. We're these incredibly sensitive creatures, mid-sized mammals, embedded in this world. And we can't make ourselves separate and completely safe and protected from the world around us. 
David White, the poet David White says, vulnerability is not a weakness, a passing indisposition, or something we can arrange to do without. Vulnerability is not a choice. Vulnerability is our, the underlying, ever-present, and abiding undercurrent of our natural state. To run from vulnerability is to run from the essence of our nature. The attempt to be invulnerable is the vain attempt to be something we are not. The only choice we have is, as we mature is how we inhabit our vulnerability how we become larger and more courageous and more compassionate through our intimacy with disappearance, inhabiting vulnerability as generous citizens of lost robustly and fully. Many of you have noticed being on retreat You've noticed Sankara Dukkha in that little things can affect you so much more than they would if you had your usual defenses. So as I said, these defenses, grasping aversion and delusion, are, are kind of protect us. And here you've been melting those, those shieldings, those places that are hard. You've been softening them. You might not realize how much because you've lost perspective you lose perspective on retreat. But what happens is little things affect us um, much more intensely. We even have a phrase for it. We call it yogi mind. So, for example, you're sitting in your room, you're in some blissful samadhi, and someone closes their door loudly. And you freak out. You have to restrain yourself from going out in the hall and strangling them. (laughs) Yes, the noise was unpleasant, and losing your samadhi was unpleasant, but the bigger issue is the contingency that you can't control this. We feel so vulnerable. Can even feel kind of uh, self-violated, like they did it just to bother me can think, if I could just get that yogi to quit shutting their door loudly, then everything would be perfect. One teacher in their early practice turned off the entire heating system in the Bodhi house in December because they couldn't stand the sound of it. I don't know what it sounds like these days. Back in the old days, it used to be loud. They realized what they had done the next morning when they got up and all the yogis were walking around the hall in their winter coats. (laughs) This is a true story. (laughs) Or you see somebody in your walking space and you have to stop yourself from glaring at them. Or you see a note on the board and your mind goes crazy for a week. I went to the doctor on my first three-month retreat about two months in. And I still remember the songs that were on the radio in the waiting room. 
I'm not going to tell you what they were. <laughs> they were really bad. <laughs> that was Sankara Dukkha. Because <laughs> when I came back for days, those songs were in my mind, you know, because that, we don't get much input, you know, around here. So because of the uncontrollability of this constant impingement, sense impingement, how uncomfortable it makes us, we try to arrange our environment so that we're not feeling so vulnerable. Us teachers get many helpful notes about what can be done to improve the (laughs) environment here. (laughs) And we know the yogis are, you know, suffering from Sankara Dukkha. When we're really out of control, when we're really feeling vulnerable and we can't hold it, we can't recognize it, we can't hold it, we might even write notes to other yogis telling them how they can improve the environment here. (laughs) I did that on my first retreat. I was uncontrollably aversive. I'm an aversive type, so aversion. So there's a yogi sitting behind me who snored through lots of sittings. And um, I did everything wrong. The guy sitting next to me, who was my VR, um, we together wrote him a note suggesting that maybe he could take a nap. And we probably signed it meta, you know, like, (laughs) don't do that. It was so bad. He was such a nice guy. I met him after the retreat, just the nicest guy. That's what you should not do. But that's, we, we, we feel, we freak out. You know, we freak out here because we feel so vulnerable. When we first start to practice meditation, we secretly, or maybe not so secretly, hope that it's going to make us invulnerable. We'll become so strong that nothing can get to us. And there is, a, there is a certain kind of invulnerability, unshakable liberation, the Buddha called it. But, the, but what we're hoping is that we'll kind of float above the flack and fray of life, enjoying the view from the peacefulness of our cloud in the sky. But the truth of practice, when engaged in an integrated way, is that we move closer to life not further away. Or we could say that life moves closer to us. (laughs) We become more able to be touched by life. And we feel the true condition of our intimate vulnerability with life within us and around us. So there's different ways we can use this word vulnerable. And one of them has to do with shame and being open to harm. I'm not talking about that way. Alternatively, vulnerability is the ability to be affected. Vulnerability is letting down our guard enough so that we can connect in an undefended manner. 
That's what I was saying. Y'all, your your defenses are are not quite as in shape as they were <laughs> when you got here. They they've been softened. Vulnerability is a courageous stance of the heart that is willing to forego the protective cocoon of our dullness and reactivity in favor of genuine engagement with this wild world. In our practice, we melt that shielding of the heart, the barriers of the heart, the grasping aversion and delusion. And we let ourselves be touched by life. One teacher, Anand Thupten, um, calls it melting the ice mountains. And I love that expression. He talks about melting the ice mountains in our hearts. And as we melt the ice mountains, we move closer to life. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, body sensations, emotions all become more vibrant and alive. The reactive barriers of the heart and mind mute true connection with life. With more transparency, less shielding we feel the world as vibrant, alive, and energized. We so want security through being able to control this world, but that's not the kind of world we live in. That's not our universe. Eric Fromm said, the task we must set for ourselves is not to feel secure, but to be able to tolerate insecurity. Uncertainty. And of course, we meet that truth with resistance, fear, but there is another way to meet it. We talked last week about this um, When we can meet that truth with an open heart, the whole world sparkles and opens up. At one point, um, hmm, no, I think I should move on. Let's move on. I'm not going to tell that story. (laughs) So we've been talking about dukkha. Dukkha, dukkha, viparinama, dukkha, sankara, dukkha. What are we going to do with all this suffering? So there's two pathways we can consider, the pathway of wisdom and the pathway of compassion. Dukkha motivates us. It motivates us to try to understand deeply how we can be free in this... um, tricky universe that we've taken birth in, right? It's a tricky one. It's not so easy. How can we be free? And 
the end of our exploring always comes back to, we could call it letting go or non-clinging, not holding on. My voice recognition software um, translates non-clinging as non-cleaning, which I never quite got. (laughs) What's non-cleaning? I don't think there's a whole lot of wisdom there, except for maybe allowing things to be a little messy is a kind of wisdom. Not trying to hold on to... um, the aggregates or the sense experiences or the constituents of the heart, body, mind, not trying to shield and protect and own and control experience. And as we study how we do this, so the the end of dukkha comes through studying and going through dukkha, so as we watch ourselves glom on, ID with, and identify with sense experience, um, try to control, try to grasp, push away, dull out, as we watch ourselves do that and as we see this continual, continual change, we consider letting go. Usually our last option, we have to try everything else first. <laughs> And we start to become more comfortable with the groundlessness of this life. And we start to see that the world doesn't totally fall apart if we don't totally keep it together. We can resign as general manager of the universe. And instead let go, let go, let go, and enjoy the ride. This is a long story, but I'm going to tell it because it's, I think it's so much fun. So this is a Suzuki Roshi story. It's um, from um, Ed Brown's book again. So he's talking about when he was a cook at Tassajara Monastery back in the 60s. And they would do these family-style meals, and um, they would make sure everybody got what they needed. So it says, we would serve hot cereal and put out white sugar, brown sugar, and honey because some people didn't want to be eating sugar. There were a lot of students practicing Zen macrobiotics. It's too yin, they would say. There were also people who didn't like honey, so we served molasses. You wouldn't want to deny anyone what they wanted. Everybody should get what they want, right? That's the American way. Have it your way, the way you want it to be. So then they switched to this way that... um, where they do in some Zen monasteries where they eat, get served in a row, and they all eat together in the, um, in the Zendo. And um, they have to pass this condiment plate. Oh, then he says, then we had milk. Some people wanted milk with more fat, otherwise known as half and half. Some people wanted canned milk. This was before 2% in non-fat milk and almond milk and rice milk and soy milk and different flavors of all those milks. We only had to deal with so much choice back then, so it was communal tables. But then when they had these condiment trays that got passed down, it would take forever for them to go down. So he's, so they, they figured out that he needed more condiment 
trays. He said, we found that we wanted to have one set of condiments for every three people. And if there were 45 people in the meditation hall, there were 15 sets of condiments and about eight different dishes with each one of the condiments. So we're talking 120 or so little dishes. (laughs) After breakfast, do we want to put those things away and clean all those dishes, or do we want to leave them out, or do you put plastic wrap over them? How shall we do this? In the kitchen, we were baffled. About the second or third morning we had done this, somebody came out to those who were serving the meal and said, Suzuki Roshi would like to give a lecture. Please come into the meditation hall. Suzuki Roshi said, I don't really understand you Americans. When you put so much milk and sugar on your cereal, how will you taste the true spirit of the grain? Why don't you taste the true nature of each moment instead of trying to make everything taste just the way you want it to? Why don't you taste your own spirit? What, did you think you could add milk and sugar to each moment of your life to make it taste the way you want? (laughs) Those of us who worked in the kitchen were overjoyed. (laughs) This meant a hundred or more fewer condiment dishes. And then there's this whole part about cooking oatmeal. And like if the oatmeal was too thick, the people um, practicing macrobiotics would come in and say, you know, it's early in the morning, you should have thin cereal so we could digest it. And then if they made it thin, the people who were working outside would come in and say, we need more cereal in the morning, we need stronger cereal, we're working outside. (laughs) This is the Buddhist truth. There's no way to get moment after moment to be according to your taste. It's not your fault. It can't be done. It's not because of your lack of skill or lack of trying or lack of savvy or competence or your lack of self-esteem. It's not your fault that you can't get this moment or the next moment to be to your liking. That's the first noble truth. It can't be done. Not even enlightenment will help you have everything according to your taste. Letting go. Letting be. Not clinging to these experiences of heart, body, and mind. I love to practice um, in the wilderness, and one reason, and in the outside, when I live, I live in Western Mass, not too far from here, and when I, I'm at home, I pretty much practice outside every day, and I don't care what the weather is, I don't care if it's cold, I, I, blizzards are great, um, thunderstorms like those two, uh, anything is all right, and partly I like to do that because of... Um, Exploring letting go, like exploring having to have conditions be a certain way in order to meditate or in order to be happy or in order to not be averse. So in the blizzard, just feeling the wind against the cheek and the stinging of the, of the snowflakes and in the rain, listening to the sound of the raindrops and the wind 
the whir in the pine trees and the clatter of the beech trees. It's a wild world. One time I went um, wilderness camping in the Adirondack uh, Mountains, a few hours from here. This was when I was younger, and um, a few days, I made the plan in June, and a few days before I was going to go, the weather looked like it was going to be pretty bad. It was going to be in the 40s and raining, basically, for the foreseeable future. And I considered canceling, being out in the wilderness and that weather, and I thought, no, you know, I'm going to practice being with things as they are, so I'll go. So my um, husband, bless his heart, he, he came with me to help me set up, and then I got rid of him and um, was blissfully alone. It was cold, it was rainy, but there was nobody on the lake, which is exactly how I liked it. And um, no bugs. It was, you know. So every morning I would wake up, and I'd look out the tent, and, and I'd go, oh, okay, still raining, still cold. And... Um, I really value honesty in practice, so I would give myself about three minutes to gripe. And I'd be like, oh, I didn't want this kind of weather. Oh, it's cold, it's dreary. And then after a few minutes, I'd say, okay, how am I going to be happy today? Letting go, letting be, connecting with things as they are. I was happy. And then after about four or five days, the sun came out, and then all these people came on the lake, and the black flies came out, started biting. There is no perfect cootie. Can't get it just right. So I just want to say this vulnerability, which can have a bad rap, it also has a, has a flip side. When, and this flip side is like just a hair's breadth from painful vulnerability. So painful vulnerability is when we're feeling impacted, right, and we don't like it. But just a hair's breadth away from that is what I call exquisite vulnerability. And that's... Um, It's this exquisite embeddedness in this world, aliveness, intimacy, a sensitive relationship with life that's wide open, receptive, and fresh. And we heal our self-imposed alienation behind the shielding of our heart, we heal that and take our place in the community of all beings. And that's the exquisite vulnerability that comes with the melting the ice mountains in the heart. Non-clinging can be an acquired taste, especially for the greed types. Uh, John Engler said to Deepa Ma, 
Um, I'm guessing he was a greed type. He said, I said to Deepama once, very early on, that the outcome of practice sounded pretty dull and blah to me. Once you got rid of desire and aversion, where was the chutzpah? Where was the pizzazz? Where was the juice? Life would be pretty tepid and uninteresting if you didn't enjoy anything at all. To my surprise, she broke out laughing. No, she said, you don't understand. Life is so much more full of zest now than it was before when I was carrying all that baggage around. Now each experience has its own taste, and then it passes and it's gone. And then the next experience has its own taste. That's uh, exquisite vulnerability. The other response, so wisdom, the other response to dukkha is compassion, which you were practicing consciously last night as one of the Brahma Viharas. So compassion is that, you could say that the unobstructed, the unshielded heart, when it encounters suffering, the natural response is tenderness, warmth, and the wish to alleviate pain. And it's a heart that's wide and large enough to include suffering without the need to get rid of it. The Zen hermit poet Rio Khan describes it like this. Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to include all the suffering people in this floating world. I love this expression of compassion because there's a there's the, the wide heart, right? And the, the heart that cares and is warm. But then the last line, the suffering people in this floating world, there's also some sense of spaciousness, right? Of freedom in that heart. So this, this quality of compassion, it has different aspects, One is this warmth, this softening. It melts the ice mountains, compassion does. Tenderness. A kind of maybe poignant or even bittersweet kind of quality. The sweetness coming from the connection. And the bitterness from the truth of suffering. With compassion, we soften into suffering rather than brace against it. It's soothing, like spreading warm oil on the skin on a cold night. But compassion is also an empowered state of mind. We might misconceive compassion as a wimpy state. Too strong, to, too wimpy to stand up, too soft to stand up. But in reality, compassion's strength comes from its capacity to not crumble or shrink in the face of suffering. It's rooted in the earth and it can radiate with power. One example that I sometimes use is Emma Gonzalez, who now uses the name X Gonzalez. Um, 
who manifested this compassion a number of years ago after the shootings in the, uh, the, in the Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, they stood in front on the mall. Some of you might remember this on the mall in Washington, and they stood in front of um, thousands of people, and, and uh, you know, television cameras stood for six minutes the amount of time that the tragedy had happened in their school just stood there with tears streaming down their face, but with this power to hold it in front of all of those people. Compassion can be fierce in its determination not to crumble in the face of, in the face of suffering. And lastly, compassion is um, spacious, infused with equanimity. There's a boundless heart, the one that is able to hold pain, misfortune, and suffering. Understanding that the world operates due to many causes and conditions and that we can't control all of them and that things are unfolding in ways that aren't always understandable for us. And this last aspect of spaciousness does not cancel out the warmth, however. It's all together. And this wider perspective is what keeps us from getting bogged down and burnt out. We'll talk more about this later as we get near the end of the retreat. All right, so with wisdom and compassion as our protections, the wisdom of not compl- non-clinging and the heart of compassion, we can land fully in this human, human realm with all of its joy but also all of its suffering. like to end with the story that I have lost, but I'm going to find it. It's not hard to <laughs> Here it is. This is from a book called Women of the Way by Sally Tisdale, and it's about Tejitsu a Japanese abbess in the 1700s. Standing on the small porch of Hakujan, she saw the shadow of a little wren cross the footpath, followed by the shadow of a hungry crow, and she saw that the little wren arose, abided, and fell away. And then she saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away, and that a Abiding arose, and she saw that knowing arose, abided, and fell away. And then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist of her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Let's 
let's sit for a minute. And she opened the clenched fist of her heart, mind, and let go and fell into the midst of everything. all the bodhisattvas, the devas, our ancestors, our sangha, may they protect us and strengthen us, giving us the courage and the heart to meet dukkha with wisdom and compassion. And as always, if there's any nuggets that felt useful to you, you can take them and let the rest of the words float away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.